Hello, 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 and welcome back to Deconstructing Disney here on the Comet Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the making, origin, and lasting impact of Disney films. I'm Tori. I'm Marin. I'm Nia. And I'm Decoria. And today we'll be jumping into the 1963 uh, animated film, The Sword in the Stone. Um, to our 97ers, I don't know why I wanted to play our 98ers. 97. <laughs> Have you seen the Sword of the Stone before, Mary? Um, no, I've never seen it before. Well, yeah, I haven't you, seen Corey. it either. I haven't seen it and I haven't heard of it. Mm, okay. And Nia, have you watched? Um, no, I had not seen it. I heard of this like when I was doing my Disney binge in high school. I had seen this movie. I skipped it purposefully, <laughs> but I um, <laughs> I knew of it, didn't see it, but I also saw it in Kingdom Hearts as well. What about uh, you, Tori? Okay, okay. I've heard of the different adaptations of the story, but I have never seen the Disney film in full. Um, for those of you who don't know, The Sword of the Stone is a 1963 American animated musical fantasy comedy film produced by Walt Disney and released by Buena Vista Distribution. It's the 18th Disney animated feature film and is based on the novel of the same name by T.H. White. It was directed by Wolfgang Richterman, one of the nine old men, and the story is by Bill Pete. Uh, it stars Ricky Sorzen, Carl Swinson, Junis Mathis, Sebastian Cabot, Norman Alden, and Martha Wentworth. Uh, it was released December 25th, 1963, 74 minutes, had a budget of $3 million and a box office of $2.2 million in the United States and Canada. So, with all of that information, we're just going to head and jump into a recap. Um, Sword in the Stone, because this is the 60s, it starts off with a book opening, like most of the Disney films. During this time, uh, King Unther Pendragon dies, having leaving no heir to his throne, and a sword magically appeals in an anvil. Um... Embedded in the stone is the inscription proclaiming that whoever removes this sword is the rightful king of England. In one second, let me bring up. Okay. So, um, because there is no rightful king uh, and nobody has been able to pull the sword out of the anvil, it eventually begins forgotten, leading England into the Dark Ages, which is supposed to be, according to Wikipedia, akin to the War of the Roses. Now, um, we then jump to a scene of a wizard in a blue getup and a white beard pulling whatever what out of the well. He's complaining about the dark ages being so slow and inconvenient. He's talking about electricity and I'm going to tell you I was very confused at this but as we continue to go on with the story we learn that this is Merlin and Merlin can see the future and therefore he knows what England will be like in the future and so of course the dark ages for him are not giving. I mean it wouldn't be giving for me. There was no plumbing. Um, So Merlin is preparing to meet somebody and he's talking to Archimedes, his very intelligent pet owl, who's talking about who do you, like, you're always talking about the future, you're never living in the present, all of this other good stuff, and he's like, do you even know who's coming? He's like, ah, I kind of, kind of know who's coming. I think it's a young lad, and so we get this little foggy vision of these two brothers walking in the woods. The older one is Kay, the younger one is Wart, aka Arthur. And so Wart and Arthur are going hunting. Um, we can tell by their their little tiki taka, their back and forth that um, Wart is uh, kind of uh, a squire to Kay or a servant, and you know Kay's you know, the big bully older brother. Uh, he sets up a shot to hunt a deer and tells Wart, "Don't do nothing, so I can get this deer." But Wart, who is sitting on a branch, just a branch, a branch, just casually, of course, falls off the branch, causing his brother to miss the shot. Um, Kay wants to, you know, wants to wring his little brother's neck, and uh, but Wart's like, it's okay, I'll go in the woods and get your arrow for it. He's like, you sure you want to go in there? It's full of wolves. He's like, it's okay, I'll find it. I'm like, yeah, no, um, I probably think you should listen to your brother, even if he just wanted to kill you two seconds ago. But this 11 year old is um decided to go into the woods, and as he's walking in the woods, the skinniest wolves that ever did be uh sees him and tries to eat this child. All to the child's, um, not to the child's knowing, though. It's not like he's being chased by this wolf. The wolf is just casually following him around the woods as he climbs trees to find this arrow. As he goes to retrieve the arrow, he falls into the roof of Merlin's house. 
where he lands in a chair and is served tea. And Merlin begins to talk about, um, oh, I just knew you were coming. I'm so happy to see you got here a little late, though. Um, and he introduces himself as I'm Merlin, a soothsayer who can see the future and um, knows magic. And um, again, I don't know what was happening in the Dark Ages, but this child is very underwhelmingly surprised to be in the house of a man who claims to do magic and see the future and so they're having this conversation and merlin just declares himself to be arthur's tutors he says i'm going to go home with you um to your castle and teach you things but this is after he and so then he decides to um pack up his house using magical words that are I can never spell. I can spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious before I can spell <laughs> any of the spells that Merlin was spitting out. But he basically <laughs> packs up his whole house into a little tiny bag, very Mary Poppins style, and they head back to um, Arthur's home, where his foster father, Sir Ector, is mad at Kay. Why did you let him go run off like that? I've become the. Fo- I've become. Um, his you know adopted father we can't let him you know do dangerous stuff like that in case like i'm not his keeper so that's on you and so um also returns you know he's greeted by the dogs um and you know his stepfather is very upset with him how you know how dare you go off into the woods and run i'm like that's pretty decent parenting and then he makes some clean clean dishes and so then merlin introduces himself to Ecta. um and they have this little back and forth and he makes it snow showing Sir Ector that he's um a really is a wizard and he wants to be Arthur's teacher. And you know, Sir Ector's like, You don't do dark magic. He's like, No, I don't. And so he gives him a room in the most busted tower in this entire uh, castle. I honestly don't know how that thing was still standing. Um But as they do that, uh after that after they have that, this is when um, Sir Pelinor, it's the father's friend, arrives um, and says that there's going to be a New Year's Day tournament in London, and whoever wins, we come crown king. I don't think that is a good way to pick the monarch of your entire country, but I guess the Dark Ages was really pressing, so they said anybody who's of, you know, rightful noble birth can come and, you know, try out for this competition. And so Hector decides that his son Kay will be a contestant, because he looks like he'll be a good king. Um, so to do all that, they start doing this training. And um, of course, Arthur is appointed as Kay's squire to help him train. Um, so then we move into one of the second magical sequences is that um we learn that merlin likes arthur because he has a good heart and he works really well after he's watching him help Kay practice and so to teach him a lesson he decides to turn the boy into a fish and merlin also turns himself into a fish and they go swim in the castle moat to learn about physics um he teaches him how to swim. They sing a little song. He gets chased by a barracuda, which I don't know why is in this moat in the first place. Uh, at first, Merlin is like, you have to outsmart him, brains over bronze. And I'm like, cool. But couldn't you have had this lesson in the classroom and not in a life or death situation? Um, but they do this whole thing. Merlin, uh, not Merlin, Arthur almost gets eaten by this barracuda. Thank God Archimedes was there to save him. Um, that's the end of the lesson about physics. Um, we get to see Arthur doing more of his daily chores, doing the dishes. And uh, Merlin's like, I want to teach you again. So let's just make the dishes clean themselves. And we'll go off to learn about, I guess, this is a very non-nuanced conversation about relationships. Uh, Merlin turns... The Merlin turns himself and Arthur into squirrels. Um, and, you know, he's like, I 
at first I thought the lesson was about, you know, look before you leap, which means, you know, prepare before you do some stuff. And then it turns into a very bad conversation about consent as two female squirrels fall in love with Arthur and Merlin. Um, they sing a little song that will never be remembered by anybody. <laughs> and um, when they turn themselves back into humans, both of the female squirrels are appalled. The uh, way that uh, <laughs> the squirrels screamed had me crying. I was like, well, why did he sound like that? <laughs> yeah, they were like literally being chased around by these female squirrels. Also, Arthur almost died again because that wolf has not given up and he almost got eaten by the wolf and the female squirrel saved him and then he turned to a human boy and she was, you know, very, very sad. Um, so they head back to the castle and Merlin gets scolded by his adoptive father because he accuses, well, not Merlin, Arthur gets scolded by his adopted father because the father accuses Merlin of using black magic on the dishes um, which Kay and the father had discovered and they were trying to fight the dishes and it wasn't working and so um, Arthur defends Merlin saying he's a good you know he's a good wizard he's not in the black magic um, Hector refuses to listen and he punishes Arthur saying that Kay that he will no longer be the squire to Kay um taking away Arthur's chances to visit London and so our little author is very sad um but he no longer has like his job in the kitchen and he can't be a squire anymore and you know Merlin apologizes said, but that's okay I'll teach you full time now and so he goes to Merlin's room to learn about the future about look airplanes and the world is round and there's new worlds to be discovered and then we and so as he's doing all of this Archimedes is telling him that men have never learned from the future. You're telling him for the future is only going to confuse him. He should learn from the past about history. And we learn that Arthur cannot read and write. So Archimedes has to teach him his alphabet. And that's not really, uh, it's working, but it's not really working. And so then Arthur mentions something about always having a, oh, well, Merlin talks about planes and Arthur mentions he's always wanted to fly. And so what does Merlin do? Turn him into a bird. And so <laughs> Merlin and Archimedes go on this little flight together. A hawk chases Arthur down. Um, and he ends up falling into the another house of another witch. Whose name is Madame Mim. An eccentric evil witch who likes pink and purple. And she talks about dark magic and how she can kill flowers. And she can turn into ugly things and turn into a pretty woman if she wants to. And then when she learns that Arthur is Merlin's student, she's like, oh, now I have to destroy you. And so she, because Arthur's a bird at that moment, she turns into a cat and chases him around. And just when she's about to destroy him, Merlin shows up and they do a wizard duel where uh the rules are that no one can disappear and no one can turn into a dragon and the whole thing is that the wizards have to turn into other animals and objects to outdo each other until somebody wins um now mm, yes so they have this fight you know for instance Merlin turns into a mouse she turns into an elephant Merlin turns into a goat to ram her off the side um you know just you know he turns into a mouse she turns into a snake all that good stuff um merlin is obviously winning and then mim breaks the rules by turning into a dragon um and she tries to she tries to do the dragon um she's about to win and merlin decides that he's going to turn into a germ and make her sick and so he turns into a germ he makes her sick uh she gets he wins they go back to the castle and we find out that Hobbes has also gotten six with the mumps and so Hector reinstates Arthur as Kay's squire Arthur is delighted he gets to go to London he's been wanting to be a squire all his life um and Merlin is very upset with this um because he, uh Arthur cares more about being a squire than being 
um, his student and, you know, becoming smarter and all of that stuff. And in a fit of anger, you know, but Arthur defends himself. He says, this is all he's ever known. Why does he have to be concerned about the future? Why can't he live for the now? And Merlin unintentionally uh, transports himself to the Bermuda Triangle in the 21st century. Didn't mention that before. Not only can this man transform himself, do magic, and see the future, he can also time travel. Um, And so he goes to the 21st century in London, um, 21st century Bermuda Triangle. And so at the tournament in London, um, everybody's getting ready to fight. Arthur realizes he has left Kay's sword back at the inn. He goes to the inn. The doors are closed. And he sees the sword and the stone in a nearby churchyard. Um, Arthur, who doesn't know about the legend of the sword and the stone, removes the sword. You know, the minute he touches it, angels start singing and light pours down. But he's like, oh, okay, we got to go. So he takes the sword. He gives it to Hector. I oh, know he gives it to Kay. And when Kay sees when Hector, the father, sees a sword, he's like, this is the sword that makes them king. Um, Hector places the sword back in the anvil, demanding that Arthur prove that he pulled it out. Kay attempts to pull it out. A bunch of other knights attempt to pull it out. There's one knight there who's just like, let Arthur do it since he's the one who did it in the first place. And so Arthur does it. He takes out the sword and... Hector gets on his knees and tells his son to get on his knees. This is now the king of England. Um, you know, Hector apologizes to Arthur and all the knights cheer for him. And, you know, Arthur is sitting on this throne in this oversized coat and this oversized crown. And he's just like, I want to go home. I'm, you know, I don't want to be here. He tries to get the side door. They're screaming his name. He tries to go out the front door. They're still screaming his name. And then Merlin returns back from the Bermuda Triangle. He's talking about how the 21st century is overrated. A waste of a planet. And so he resolves to be Arthur's um, tutor and says that they will be talking about you for centuries to come. The end. Mm. <laughs> yeah. There's <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Corey, what were your feelings after finishing The Swords of Stone? Um, before I watched this, I didn't realize that this was just about King Arthur. So when mm-hmm. I was like watching it, I was like, oh, okay, well, I know like, uh, I, I know of like King Arthur's story. I thought that the parts about Merlin time traveling to like current times was interesting. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I was like, okay. Like at the end, I, did, I was like, all right, well, whatever it's over (laughs) (laughs) uh what about you man um i honestly found it a little boring but especially after watching one-on-one dalmatians which i was really into Mm -hmm. and it was kind of short i don't know i guess it just told Uh, arthur's story very quickly in my opinion yes 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 um what about you nia um was very bored um did not this was like the first movie in a while that i truly did not like um i the music wasn't capturing me the premise i was like what's the plot what's what's the story please tell me what the story is um kind of frustrated because i feel like the last 20 minutes of the movie could have been a better movie if that would have started there um yeah yeah it was fairly very disappointed yeah this was as somebody who watched the adaptations of this book and seen what like the story of king Arthur and the knights of the round table are um this was boring as fuck it's definitely for kids i feel like this is the first real movie where it's like well, no. I feel like we regressed, which I don't understand how we regressed, especially when y'all start to hear the production of this. Um, because like Marion just said, Wandering in One Dimensions was fun. I feel like this was trying to be fun, but I could not help being re- reminded of Fant- Fantasia, Fantanasia, whatever the fuck that is. Fantasia, mm-hmm. Fantasia, with all of the 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 magical sequences and objects moving. I was like why are we doing that again like that was the whole movie 
And the squirrel scene, well, that squirrel scene, I guess when we'll get to critiques, I'll talk about that. Because the conversation around consent <laughs> was just like, I couldn't look over it. I was like, let me just turn my, my, my brain off. But the scene just kept going. <laughs> um, Yes, with that being said, let's jump into interesting production facts. Which, there was a little drama during this time. Um, so first let's just talk about random stuff. I found these um on D twenty three, Wikipedia, and then IMDB. Um this is the first Disney animated feature film since Snow White and the Seven Doors to be released in December. It's the fourth Disney animated film set in the United Kingdom. It's the first Walt Disney animated feature since Lady and the Tramp to be not released in January. I just thought that was a random fact that everybody should know. Here's a here's a drama. Okay, so first the green light for the movie in itself so we all know after when world world 2 broke out disney was on its last legs and so they started making what propaganda film to make sure they could still have money and that's when we started getting snow white some doors cinderella Alice in wonderland right and so um there were two animated projects that were up for slate after one was the sword in the stone and another one was called chan c-h-a-n-t-e-c-l-e-r chantlesser it's a four-act play by esther edmund roston the play is notable and that all the characters are farmyard animals including the main protagonist chantlesser or rooster the play centers on the theme of idealism and spiritual sincerity as contrasted with cynicism and artificiality. Much of the play satires modernistic artistic doctrines from Rothstein's romantic perspective. I can't have another Bambi. Oh my god, it's giving me Bambi. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, around the same time, so these two projects were up for development, right? So Roy, who is Walt's older elder brother, um, attempted to persuade Walt to discontinue their feature animation division. He's like, um, we've made enough films. We'll get a bunch of successful releases. And Walt was like, eh, because he had plans to build another theme park in the U.S. He, so they said they would approve only one animated film to be released every four years, right? And so, while this Rooster film was being adapted, two, uh, I think these are two of the old nine men, yeah, Mark Davis and Ken Anderson, um, they were producing this, right? And they did the music archives, they were working on the satirical till, they were, they were doing all of this work, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> and so then they pitched it, right? Anderson and Davis had pissed it. I didn't think Wolfgang, Wolfgang and Cal, who were the directors of this movie. Um, oh, wait, no. All four directors spent months doing storyboards for this, right? They went to a presentation and they pitched it. And according to Wikipedia, according to this article that has been like from, uh, it's sourced from a book. It says you can't make a personality out of a chicken. <laughs> Could you imagine? Chicken Run literally exists. <laughs> <laughs> chicken Run exists. <laughs> like, what? Well, I mean, it wasn't out of the 1960s. <laughs> so, could you imagine putting all this work in for this story? And then somebody said, You can't make a personality out of a chicken. I'm sorry. Y'all had a whole that? movie about an elephant. I don't they didn't <laughs> exist once again. Like,. <laughs> what right <laughs> so when the time came to approve between the rooster or the sword walt said that the problem with making your rooster protagonist is that you don't feel like picking your rooster up and petting it and i was like i mean he has a point at i guess at that moment but whatever right so the sword of the stone gets developed it's solely by the veteran story artist bill pete Bill Pete's been on a bunch of other Disney films. Actually, let me look at his record real quick because I'm pretty sure he did a shit ton <laughs> of 
of of Disney. Yeah. Uh, he was he worked on Song of the South. He worked on Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, A Sleeping Beauty. So you know, he did a, he did a bunch of stuff, right? And so, so it got approved, and because Disney at Walt had seen like the 1960 Virgin Broadway production of Camelot, he approved the project to enter production. And Ali Johnson, who I think is another one of the old eye men, stated that. Um, one of the other directors got furious with Bill, the writer for this story, for not pushing the rooster story that they had been working on. Um, and he said, and Carl said to Johnston, I can draw a damn fine rooster. And Bill said, so can I. I was like, oh, so shit was going on. And so then Bill continues. He's like, how humiliated. He's like, he recalled, I guess, later in like his autobiography and stuff. He's like, how humiliated they were to accept defeat and give in to the sword of the stone. He allowed them to have their own way and they let him down. They never understood that I wasn't trying to compete with them. Just trying to do what I wanted. What I wanted to work. Uh, what was just trying to do what I wanted to work for. I was in the midst of all this competition and had Walt's please. Right? And so Pete said that he decided to write a screenplay before producing storyboards, and that's how he found the narrative complicated with the Arthurian legend and a bunch of different other legends and myths. Um, And he had to do a lot of shifting and sorting to find a good storyline. After Walt received the first screenplay, he told Bill that it should have more substance. And so... Pete lengthened the second draft by elaborating more on the dramatic aspects of the story, which Walt approved through a phone call from Palm Springs. <laughs> G- FYI, this was the last film in which Bill Pete served as a writer. He later created a version of The Jungle Book, but Walt Disney threw Pete's story out with their relationship fell apart and Pete left the studio. Damn. <laughs> Girl, I should have Huh? <laughs> Overall, out of all the movies to they lose a relationship her. over. Like, right. <laughs> so there was just some there was some drama going on in the background. I honestly think I'm gonna look more into this Bill Pete and Walt situation. And I'll give y'all the tea in the next episode. Um, but this was the first Disney animated feature made under a single director. Um previous features had all been directed by either two or three directors or by a team of sequence directors under supervising director. Um, of course, Wolfgang Ritterman, um, one of the old nine, nine old men, was the one who directed this. And he directed almost all the Disney features up to the 1980s. Um, if you can, if you listened closely, you could tell that Arthur was voiced by three different actors. I think it was three different child actors. I didn't go into detail about this, but at one point in time, he sounds like from the South, and then another point in time, his voice breaks. I don't <laughs> know why they did that. Um, Junius Mathis, who voices the um, Archimedes the Owl, um, also acted as the original voice actor for the Rabbit and Winnie the Pooh franchise from 1966 to 1977. Um, if you watch Sleeping V, you can tell that many elements of Sleeping Booty have been recycled into the films into Sword in the Stone. They reused the opening credit backgrounds of the medieval setting. Three most notables that King Hubert, who also resembles Sir Ector, the owl from the forest scene who had inspired Archimedes and Maleficent the dragon that looks like Madame Man when she changes into a dragon in the fight. Um, Ector and Pellimore's laughs were actually recycled from King Hubert and King Stephen's laugh from Sleeping Beauty. The antagonist of the story, Madame Mim, was later featured in various comics where she interacted with other notable Disney characters such as Captain Hook and Magica the Spell. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Let me... Actually, who is Magica the Spell? Oh! She's the major villain from the Scrooge McDuck comics. <laughs> oh. Um... Mm-hmm. Though she mostly was evil, she was actually somewhat different character in the European Disney comics. She was portrayed as less evil and rather polite, which is um, interesting. Um, this is the only animated Disney movie from the 1960s that does not yet have a platinum DVD, a sequel, a TV show, or a live action remake. So yes, those were some production facts. After a while, we got back to the juicy production facts. 
because I really want to know what else is going on for Bill to be like, I'm up and out of here. <laughs> also, could you imagine doing all that work for somebody to be like, you can't make a thing out of a chicken? I'd be like, Negro, didn't you just make two animals about <laughs> the stars of your movies? I'd be so upset. Um, but yeah, this is also still uses Xerox technology, which I think was probably my favorite part of watching this movie was the way it was animated. It's very Renaissance Disney animation. Um, and I actually really wish they'd bring that Xerox style back. I know that probably would suck for animators, but I think it's really pretty. Um, but yeah, that was it with production facts. Let's move on to music with Nia. Okie dokie. So all my sources I got from the usual places, um, several IMDb's. So um, the music IMDb, the facts IMDb, and then I got it from the wiki, the Wikipedia and the Disney wiki and the cartoonresearch.com. So this interestingly, this is a very, very, very short soundtrack. It's one probably one of if not the shortest Disney animated film soundtracks there is literally only six songs like usually on the disney soundtrack when i'm looking up stuff i'll find different sources that say oh well this soundtrack had eight songs no it had 10 no it had 12 so i kind of like estimate like based off of which source i think is probably the most concrete but this told me on multiple sites that there are literally only six (laughs) songs on this so they were like nah this is it (laughs) um and it could be that it probably never got like a, a a proper re-release mm-hmm. like cinderella all the big disney animated films have gotten like 25th edition 50th edition re-releases of their soundtracks where they've added new songs and stuff but this is i don't think this has gotten in a re-release um and i'll get into more of that later um and there are also uh, on the, even though there's six songs total there were three that were n- never added um they are the magic key the sand of time and blue oak tree um just the ending was included in the film um so two songs were written and they were scrapped. Um, Blue Oak Tree was sung by Sir Ector and Sir Pillionor, um when they celebrated Kay's knighthood. Um, and the magic key was to be Merlin's lecture to Arthur about the value of education. It was replaced by Hidicus Fidicus. Um, Figitus. Higitus Figitus. Okay. Right, listen, words, two words, <laughs> HF. <laughs> um, this was the first animated Disney film to feature songs by the Sherman Brothers. Um, and they will later, for the later movies we do, they did work, they did songs for Mary Poppins, which is like their most famous soundtrack. And they also did songs for the Aristocats and more, um, mostly throughout the late 60s and 70s as well. Um, they are the sons of Al Sherman who, of the Tin Pan Alley Songwriters Songwriting Group. So back in the day, like the Tin Pan Alley Songwriter Group, I think I mentioned this maybe in like a couple episodes ago. I never, I like kind of glossed over it, but the Tin Pan Alley Songwriters Group was like a prominent group of like really top songwriters in film and production back in the day. Um, so they were definitely trying to like pave their own way, but they were definitely from the legacy of like songwriting in their family mm-hmm. um george bruns co- uh, composed the film score he was a disney regular by this time so he had done already sleeping beauty and 101 dalmatians so he was already like in it in the disney ecosystem um the movie doesn't have a really clear theme song to me as the other films did like for example, like Lady in the Tramp, Bella Note is the first, I think it's the first song that plays, if I remember correctly, and it plays several times throughout the movie. So you get the feeling like, okay, this is this is the theme. Um, same for Peter Pan, like the second star to the right is the first song it opens up with, I think. A lot of the really big Disney movies will start off with like, a, okay, this is the song that you're going to sing by the end of this movie, right? This movie, they tried to do like, it's called The Sword in the Stone, but it's just it's like the shortest piece of like song if you even call it um the intro for this movie was pretty short and like the song was like three stanzas <laughs> um nine lines in total um and it's never repeated so like all the songs here are like sung once and it's done um and to me the vibe i got watching this was like the songs were kind of less important to the to what they were doing they were probably i feel like it took 
for the first time in a while, the music took a back seat. Um, and I don't mean that in the same way. Like I think 101 Dalmatians didn't really have a lot of music, but that wasn't a musical, mm-hmm. right? Like that's appropriate. Like this gave me Alice in Wonderland, but more extreme. Like, cause Alice in Wonderland was a proper like opera, like where they'll go break out in the song once they're while talking, but it's a full three minute, two minute song. Um, sometimes like in the golden afternoon is a longer song, but these were like 20 seconds, 15 seconds. And I'm like, ah, are they full songs? Could you call them that? But it's not an opera because they don't, honestly, most of the songs are sung by Carl Swinson who voices Merlin. Um, and so it's like, if he's the main singer and his songs, and he's not a singer, he's kind of like talk singing it. Like Hitticus Fitticus is, I wouldn't even know how to describe. It's not really a melody. It's kind of just, he's just kind of talk singing. I don't know how else to put it. Um, so it's me like, like when you're in your kitchen and you get older and you just start to sing what you're doing. Yeah. Like, like in the moment feels kind of unplanned. That's a good way to put it. So it's like, I wouldn't even call this an opera format. I would just call it like they put music here, but they weren't focused on it. Um, and what's absolutely cracked me up when I was researching this, I was like, of course, this is the movie that gets nominated for Oscar. Uh, I saw best that. score. <laughs> I was like, excuse me, this? What is going on, y'all? And you're just going to skip Peter Pan? Excuse me? And I feel like Peter Pan didn't get a nomination or, and I don't even think that deserved all of it, but like, there are better examples and y'all give it to this. No shade. But I was thoroughly surprised it got nominated for the oscars for it never i like if you try to buy this soundtrack on a cd good luck i don't even i tried to look on amazon i could not find it it could have been just me not searching well enough but like this is not a soundtrack people are excited about so i was i was like woof it got nominated for best scoring of music adaptation or treatment but it lost um but the fact that it was nominated ah Um, Most of the songs, like I said before, ended up getting performed by Carl Swinson, who voices Merlin, because he honestly, when I look back at it, he had most of the speaking roles in this movie. I'd say much of the script was just him as dialogue and his singing. Mm -hmm. Um, So most because he talks so much in this film and the kind of one to make it like an opera format where you go from talking straight to singing, they don't... um, they he ended up getting most of the singing um even more so than the main character which is very different for a disney movie like usually the protagonist will have most of the musical numbers but the merlin had most of the songs um but um carl swinson was a very famous radio personality at first and then became a very famous tv actor Mm -hmm. um like he was in little house of the prairie i was shocked i was like oh Mm -hmm. okay and then he was in Gunsmoke too, which is a very popular show. Um, he and it was kind of like a big deal that Disney got him, like sort of how we view uh, like them getting celebrity voice actors today. Like I know they did that with Lady and the Tramp with Peggy Lee, but like this was also like a big get for Disney. Um, and honestly, I couldn't find any references to this in other media at all. Like I've looked. Um, usually on these, on the, when I do the music section, there'll be like a whole section on like, okay, this song was referenced in this parody or it was referenced in Mm -hmm. this show or referenced in this movie. I, for the life of me, (laughs) could not find anywhere where this specific animated movie, of course, the story of King Arthur is referenced in other places, but this, like the songs from this or this specific movie, I couldn't find a single thing besides like Kingdom Hearts. So I was very shocked, but not shocked because I want to ask y'all's opinions. Do you, did you think of the music at all Absolutely while watching this? Not. Did you like no. it? I was just like, <laughs> oh, that's how you play with the English language and make words, which I think is always fun as a writer to like build your world and your fantasy. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I was like, oh, these are just little diddlies that you just see yeah. in the moment. <laughs> yeah i don't even remember yeah. the music because like no. the movie had me zoning out so much because of how like uninterested i was in the plot after a while mm-hmm. like it, there was no song that actually like captured my attention really unlike the other movies like even the movies that yeah. we thought were bad at least had something that 
was like, oh, okay, this is a nice song. But like, if I heard music right, from right. Bambi, I'd be like, I think this is Bambi music. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't think you can do yeah, that yeah, with yeah. the Sword of the Stone. I don't know why this got nominated for an Oscars. Y'all were trying to get on Walter Good's side. He paid for somebody. <laughs> they were like, listen, they were like, Walt's getting mad at us that we haven't nominated a movie in like six years. We have to do something. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm a hundred percent there with y'all. Like, I didn't even remember a single melody. Like, usually I kind of will like, okay, I'm, I know this, or I can figure out where the melody is going or something these songs aren't even they're like i don't even know what you call it they're just like theatrical events i don't even want to call them songs per se because you're just saying a lot of words and they're usually a lot of them are spells so they're just saying a lot of words and like things and i'm like ah this is not memorable so the soundtrack was a huge letdown. I didn't really expect a lot, but I was very shocked at how minimal the music was. Um, definitely would not go back to look at any of these songs. Was not interested to find out more about the, the, the cut songs. Yeah, this was not it for me at all. Yeah, so that's my section. Okay. okay. Thank um, you, Nia. We'll move on to Origins with Marin. Okay. My sources are realhistoryblogspot.com and saymorabell.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. Um, the original source material for Disney Sword in the Stone is a novel is the novel Sword in the Stone written by T.H. White. Um, the book, uh, it was initially supposed to be a standalone book, but soon became the first in a tetralog- tetralogy called The Once and the Future King. Uh, Disney didn't take too many liberties with the story besides cooling down the philosophical nature of the book. Um, In White's novel, Merlin is instead spelled with a Y-N instead of an I-N. And like the movie, he lives backwards in times uh, unlike everyone else. Um, Wart is taught by Merlin as a youth for the use of power in royal life. Through their adventures, Merlin changes Wart into various animals and they go on many many more human adventures than in the movie eventually running into robin robin wood meant to be robin hood um white had an extensive knowledge of medieval culture and incorporated such things as jousting falconry hunting and hunting into the novel um white however did not try to make the book consistently historically accurate as evidenced by the time traveling wizard um as to why white as to why white wrote this story um, he envisioned the book as a preface to Mallory's Lee Morte de Arthur, which did not detail Arthur's childhood. And um, as a warning to anyone that manages to get their hands on the 1938 edition of this book, a reviewer on Goodreads.com says that it still has all sorts of nasty, sexist, and racist, and ableist, and classist, com- classist, classist comments common to that area, to that era. In the 1938 edition specifically, there is a usage of the N-word. Um, I just And they said, I just want to mention that because I hate to think of some unsuspecting nine-year-old picking it up and then having a very nasty shock, very nasty shock right in the middle. Um, it's a scene, it's a scene when Wart gets turned into a bird. And then there's also some nasty comments about barbaric Native Americans. So that's Whoa. Well, not yeah. surprised, but all right. <laughs> the origin story mm. not really much i don't think he varied much from the source material mm. okay um moving on to variations with Corey. okay so the sword and the stone is of course based off of the tale of the legendary hero king arthur um according to medieval history and romances king arthur led the defense of britain against the saxon invaders in the late fifth and early sixth centuries there are many, many, many variations of King Arthur's life, so I won't be like focusing on stories that tell his life, but mainly stories that have similar elements um, pertaining to like the sword being pulled out of the stone and whatnot, um, and it, and that are not exactly about King Arthur. So the first one is Graham, the sword Graham from the volsunga saga sorry if i mispronounced that um it's from norse mythology around 1030 the year 1030 sources wikipedia so graham is a sword that was used by the legendary hero sigmund 
uh, also known as Sigurd, to kill the dragon Fafnir. So Sigmund receives the sword at a wedding feast for his sister. Um, and partway through the feast, Odin appears um, and he takes the sword and just puts it into the bank of a tree in the hall and says, the man to pull out this sword from the trunk shall receive it from me as a gift. And he will find out for himself that he never bore in hand a better sword than his. So basically it's like, Oh my God, this is like the best sword ever. If you pull it out, it's you like, love it. <laughs> um, I love the interpretation. Oh my God, it's the best. Sword ever. <laughs> so soon after Odin left and every man made an attempt to pull the sword out of the wood, all of them fell except for Sigmund who easily extracts the sword um king sigir is kind of jealous and he wants the sword so he offers sigmund like three times his weight in gold uh but sigmund refuses so because he refuses the king grows very angry and begins plotting to steal it from him and also kill him um <laughs> so sigmund eventually kills his father king sigir and capture i don't it's like a lot of stuff going on in this story oh my gosh (laughs) but yeah he he eventually uses the sword to kill the dragon that like that's basically the end of the story there's like a lot that happens between it but just know that eventually the sword is used to kill the dragon (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah because this story it's like a very very long norse tale and there's like a part where like there's some kind of affair i it's it's a lot like there's a lot First going on here. i'm gonna use how to come up off these names sigur sigmund signing sin joltsley i pronounced that wrong i don't know yeah that's a lot so oh, oh yeah i also forgot to mention before saying all of this like some of the the stories of king arthur um like as far as the one in the Disney film where he had um, the Arthur pulling the sword out of a stone, there's like another version of King Arthur, like in the origin, like actual story where the sword, there's like two different swords. So there's mm-hmm. a sword that he pulls out of the stone, but then there's another sword that he gets when he's older that's given to him by the lady in the lake, which is called Excalibur, which is like King Arthur's, the sword that he's known to have. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. Okay, so the other story I want to talk about is Theseus, the hero of Athens. I got this information from sacredtext.com, um, how Theseus lifted the stone. So the Greek hero Theseus was the son of Aegis, king of Athens, and Aethra, who was a princess of another city. So his mother loved him dearly. Um, she would always like dote on him and whatnot. And they would travel the lands together. One day she took him to this one island where they saw this beautiful temple and saw that there was like a grove in the back of the temple and his mother knew that there was a sword buried under a stone a stone in the grove so she told him like hey like go get that sword and you know you'll be able to go reclaim your throne in Athens so he tries to get the stone but he has trouble lifting it the first time of course um but he comes back later on when he's a little bit older um and he was able to lift the sword and so he gets the sword and then also some sandals and he goes to athens goes to war and reclaims his throne yeah i mean period get that birthright and also some other retellings of king arthur (laughs) there's like a movie that came out um in 2017 that has charlie hunnam from sons of anarchy Mm -hmm. there's merlin the tv show the the bbc show i believe the british one Mm -hmm. um there's a king arthur in an anime called fate uh nia's watching that so i'm not gonna spoil (laughs) but yeah (laughs) there's that there's like a lot of different tellings of king arthur he's a very very famous hero so yeah i remember there's one movie where they actually had the round table. I can't remember which one it is, but they, yeah. they retold the story. Like, and yeah, like even back. in like video games, there's always some kind of version of the round table. Like that new game, Elden Ring, that came out a couple months ago. There's a round table in that game. Oh, yeah. I also, also forgot to mention that Kay is actually named after one of the knights of the round table. Oh. Yes. Kay is actually one of the knights of the round table. Um, thank you. That was great. Um, were there 
lots of more adaptations you just pick these two yeah there were like a lot of other stories that were similar to king arthur but most of them were about king arthur himself so it was like okay which is really interesting because disney really didn't do the man justice (laughs) yeah there's like a lot more to his life than what they put in this movie they're like metamagical yeah yeah they're like he met a magical wizard and he became king that's yeah like which they like, cut out the entire war and all that <laughs> no like because this this setup this storyline in general is so fucking boring it's it's literally magical sequence a little bit of character development that's like not even a minute long magical sequence character development magical sequence magical sequence ending and like Neo was saying, that this story could have been better if they had just started the movie at the last 20 minutes. Because once I got to see Merlin pack up his entire house into a bag, I don't need to see anything else, magical-wise. Like, aren't we supposed to be here for Arthur? Aren't we supposed to be here watching? The fact... That's one other thing. Y'all named this movie The Sword of the Stone. The Sword of the Stone didn't come out to like, minute 40... What, 78? Yeah. <laughs> 76? Yeah. Like... It really, honestly, did y'all, did it even feel like a King Arthur no, adaptation really. to y'all? Because it truly felt like was, a Merlin story to me. Oh, I also forgot to mention that Merlin was designed after Walt. Um, like how he looks? Oh, wow. Yeah, like the nose, Ooh. the face. Yeah. Forgot to mention that. Um, but I don't think that determined how the story went. It's just crazy to me that they were like, we're doing this story or the story about the rooster? I <laughs> yeah and it's weird because like in the context of how they chose to do the character development quote-unquote stages I feel like we learn nothing every time he turned back into a, hu- a human no. like even though there was like a quote-unquote right. lesson it was like it was more like okay you're just gonna put you in this situation where you nearly die and then you're gonna go back into like your normal life and it feels like we didn't learn about his backstory we didn't learn about where he came from we didn't learn about anything he's kind of learned how he reacts in dangerous situations and that's not that's not really yeah gross. there's a great <laughs> critique of the movie from i don't know what this group is called but it's oh it's disney so it's disney movie challenge and they watch the movies and they like break down um what's happening in them but before we get to the squirrel scene merlin was an awful tutor mm-hmm. arthur almost died countless times like I still don't understand yeah. why he almost had to get eaten by that barracuda when Merlin was just sitting there in that little helmet. Like, oh, it's because he couldn't remember the spell. That's what it was. He couldn't remember the spell to turn them back into humans. Um, which was fucking insane. Um, yeah, no. The man taught him nothing. <laughs> like, he was like, here's how yeah. to swim here's how to fly i'm like but if merlin or not merlin if arthur can't do that shit himself what point does do your little lessons get like i i i get the brain over bronze one cool but they didn't actually put that into work with dealing with k or dealing with sir with his father like they're like brains over bronze okay next and then what the squirrel was look before you leap and then it was that whole weird thing about consent, which we'll get to. And then what was the last one? Learning how to fly? Just, it was like, they were using the lessons as connects to like a very loose-ass plot that just falls the fuck apart. Because the whole thing with Mim, I was like, what was the point of that? There's one female character in the whole thing. There she, was no point. And she's just there to be evil and fight. Merlin they're like we have to bring dark magic into this somehow I'm like wouldn't it be more interesting if like I don't know Arthur was tricked by this woman that way he can learn a lesson not to get tricked again it's like no she's just evil and wants to destroy him because he knows Merlin like what there's it's not even good nonsense because we got Alice in Wonderland and I feel like that was good nonsense right that was organized chaos yeah true and it felt like you were progressing in Alice in Wonderland like you were trying to get to a destination whereas this felt like like I didn't I really didn't understand what the conflict was like Merlin wants to educate him quote-unquote but why what's the point like at one point it just sounded like propaganda for higher education 
he just kept talking about mm. intellect and learning and things like that. I'm like, you're not teaching him anything. <laughs> you're not. You didn't even check up to see if this boy can read and write before you started turning him into a fish and shit. I was like, <laughs> right. It, it sounded like propaganda for higher education. Um, it's probably also a very satirical look on what professors are like. Um, if I really broke it down, but it's just like. I don't know what Walt saw in that Camelot thing for him to be like, oh yeah, we definitely gotta make this into a movie. It was about magic and Merlin. It had very little to do... Like, when they got to that first conflict where Escort was... um, Where Arthur started crying because he was defending Merlin um, and Escort was being a dick, I was like, okay, there's more to this story. But it only happens at those little tiny bits in between what I feel like are extremely long magical sequences with no value to the actual plot. I also want to know what about any of Merlin's teachings are supposed to help him become a better king? Listen, child. I (laughs) maybe in the I feel like the whole book, maybe there's an understanding there, but in that just that one section, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, especially when they did the scene with the squirrels. Now, this review that I just linked y'all in the chat, um, I'm going to read what they talk about because um, at first, one of the crew members, her name is Megan, she says, when it comes to the squirrels, it's oddly refreshing to see the female characters chasing after the male characters and the male characters not wanting the attention. So often we see the reverse where the men keep, insisting in spite of how frequently the female character says no granted it's still not great boundaries should be respected regardless of gender but this subtle acknowledgement that female characters have romantic and even sexual desires on their own is so rare to see in films of this era i just had to lift it to it right and so then we have kevin who is another person of disney who says i completely agree with megan to this women continue to fight off unwanted attention for overly from overly persistent men this is absolutely a bigger problem with men and so we should be the ones leading the way to do better with that said i think it's important that no one should pursue someone who is interested in them there are ways to show characters of all genders expressing their romantic sexual desires um while i realize these are cartoon characters the cartoon animals my concern is that the scene is that even though we laugh it's not a great message at all which i agree with because marlin at first what, what happens is is that arthur gets stopped by this female squirrel she's flirting with him consistently and author who is 11 year old child is like what the fuck what's going on and Brandon's like ha 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 when squirrel when squirrels find their mate they're mates for life you're just gonna have to deal with it and i was like huh and so they have this whole thing and then another female squirrel tries to get with um merlin he's like oh my god get away from me and i was like so it was okay for the 11 year old to be accosted by this female squirrel and had to deal with it but you get to reject it it's a very weird thing and i was just like what was the point of this scene what was he supposed to learn in this scene this wasn't even a healthy discussion about female male relationships merlin was literally saying if somebody comes on you deal with it what is this 11 year old supposed to capture in his mind about this lesson towards the future you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. That whole scene was very problematic. And, like, I just... It was very problematic. And it I dragged on a lot longer than I thought it was going to do. Yes. Uh, gonna yeah. Very true. No. Yeah. This is a very good review. Disney does a very good job. Um, I would never show this movie to my children. They could live without it. Um, I think actually I would actually no you know I take that back I would use that scene about the squirrels to make have a great conversation about consent in a classroom I would definitely use that um but this entire movie has it has no plot for there to be so much drama in the background there's no plot like none yeah. whatsoever and it does it feels like was a a disservice to a very interesting and complex legacy like the story of king arthur is really fun especially Mm -hmm. when you look at all the adaptations of it like the adaptations with the merlin one is that merlin was the one that actually pulled the sword and arthur didn't and so there's like a whole bunch of different stories 
and so many different ways you could have gone with this. And again, I think this would have been a great, even if if Walt and the Disney productions wanted to include magic in it, I feel like they had great material to make that they didn't have to think that hard. So I still don't understand how this movie came out to be the way it was. <laughs> yeah, I don't get how you can fumble a source material this like yeah. robust and make it as boring as possible. <laughs> like I, I feel like this could have. And the crazy thing is, if this movie would have literally come out like 15 years later, it could have been like if they would have had a different team on this, the idea could have been right. great. Like if they would have rewritten it, redirected it. Like I just feel like they. I don't know. I feel like also towards the end where he kind of the constant references to modern time got old really quickly because mm. I was like, OK, I get it. You've seen helicopters. You've seen t- uh, radio and TV, blah, blah, blah. I get it. But like it makes it feel extra dated too. like this was the first time that I saw a Disney movie where I was like, OK, this feels like almost Looney Tunes ish mm. where they a lot of slapstick that felt really like made for kids not trying to say Looney Tunes can't be watched by adults. I'm just saying it was, it felt like it was geared towards kids. And a lot of the references felt like, Oh, look at us. We're referencing modern stuff in medieval times. Ha ha. And that could have been a thing that was new for the time, but I guess because we've seen it so much in media, I've kind of was like kind of bored with it. The whole Bermuda thing. I was like, it was very jarring for the first time to see in a Disney movie, like shorts and like a Hawaiian (laughs) t-shirt. I was like, what am I looking at? Like what is what's yeah, going on here? Very um, that really threw me out of it. Comedy that actually stuck with me. Like there was nothing funny. Yeah. About anything that was happening in this movie. Like at least with like Sleeping Beauty, yeah. the fairies were funny. That was fun. Right. True. I feel like also that like this was might have been their attempt at like pop culture modernization like you know how disney sort of in like the early 2000s 90s was like let's do fish out of water this character comes to the modern world or like we'll reference pop culture stuff that only these generation Mm -hmm. of kids will know and i feel like that they've tried that for the first time with this like mentioning like electricity and like mentioning things that people for that time would know wouldn't know what they were trying to make a joke out of it doing the whole like bermuda outfit change he came back he's like oh there's nothing to see there and i'm like okay i was just kind of like it took it sort of made it feel like it was doing that modern um sort of vibe i don't know how to describe it like that sort of we're trying to make this more modern for today's audience's decision it was very Um, it was very and i didn't think it worked with this at times yeah, you didn't need that in a King Arthur adaptation. You could have just done it to the source and that yeah. would have probably kept the fantasy element going. You don't need to do this whole, well, what about a motion picture? Oh, you might be in a motion picture. It's like, oh, you don't have to do this. <laughs> I get that it's supposed to be funny because it's breaking the fourth wall, quote unquote, but it's kind mm-hmm. of unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Does no, that make any yeah, sense? No, no, I feel like no. I kind of rambled it that. Sense. It's just like, it felt like they were trying... They were trying to appeal to a modern audience, but the whole appeal to King Arthur is that it's in the past. It works exactly. around those rules That's of it. the Dark Ages, the War of the Roses, all that stuff. So the constant reference to modern technology is like, well, why can't we just get into horse and carriage? Do we have to talk about planes? It's like they were using it, they were using the modern stuff to just further the magical aspect of it. And it was unnecessary. Yeah. It was very necessary, which is insane to me because, and maybe this was a good time for Bill Pete to stop writing stuff because we get Mary Poppins after this. (laughs) We get Mary Poppins in the (laughs) Jungle Book. Like, (laughs) those are stories with solid plots and solid storylines. So, um, what do we rate The Sword of the Stone? I give it a two because I just like the way that it looked. Yeah, same. Two. (laughs) <laughs> it was extremely boring i gave it a one <laughs> like i nothing was redeeming for me so like the animation looked good i just like disney could have done better yeah. um i mean i don't hate this animation style i liked it in 101 dalmatians because it was kind of more modern mm-hmm. setting so it looked correct for that but i was just like where did the sleeping beauty mm-hmm. budget go <laughs> where did the where did that money go no but um yeah, it's a one for me. Very forgettable. Not going to watch this Never, ever again. Like, ever. <laughs> um, that being said, 
we are going to be doing Mary Poppins next, which is going to be fun. And then we do the Jungle Book, y'all. And then we get into like the 70s and 80s, which are kind of hit and miss. When we hit 1990, though, bruh, how long is that going to take us? Till next year? Yeah, it'll be a while. But um, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you like the Sword of the Stone, please do tell us why you like it. But you have to give us a five star first before you come tell us you like it. <laughs> uh, you can give us five stars here on, on here, I mean, you can give it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, come talk to us on Discord or Twitter at Commented or TikTok at Commented Podcast. Until next time, I'm Tori. I'm Marin. I'm Nia. And I'm Decoria. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.